The Beaux-Arts Photography Podcast with Alan and Natalie Brio. Today we are going to talk about our workshops and what sets them apart from other workshops and also questions that photographers have about our workshops. Yes. And the reason why we're going to talk about that is because if you have never taken a workshop with us, how would you know what they are about? How would you know what happens in a workshop? And you can know that if you have uh, followed my essays and our podcast or you have talked to other participants. But another way is to simply listen to this conversation. Yes. Because we're going to reveal what happens during the workshops right here. So stay tuned, right? Well, Don't one of the most frequently asked questions that I get over the phone from somebody who wants some information in regards to our workshop is, number one, they don't know us. And number two, they always say that they've taken other photography workshops in the past, but they don't really say anything more to that effect. So I'll then ask, you know, well, do you have any specific questions or, you know, do you have any concerns? And sometimes that still doesn't lead to a discussion. So then I say, well, let me tell you, you know, what sets us apart from other photography workshops. And for example, I had a gentleman that was interested in the Navajo land workshop and I told him, well, a number of people take the Navajo land workshop with us because we lived with the Navajos for seven and a half years. We know the locations, but we also know a lot of Navajos and we know the culture. So we're able to relate to the Navajos, you know, very well in a very friendly manner. Yeah, because photographing Navajo land is not just going to a location, it's also dealing with the natives, you know, knowing how to talk to the natives uh, if they come to you. And just going with the flow and, and just, you flow. know, kind of letting go of things, you know. But Navajo land is not a normal location in the sense that if you go to a national park and you take a photo and a ranger comes to you and they say, what are you doing? And you say, I'm taking a photo. That's the end of it. They'll be just content with that and they'll move on. And if you have a workshop, you need a permit. And if you have your permit, that's the end of it. You're permitted and that's it. You know, that you don't need anything else. On the reservation, if a local resident comes to talk to you and you show them your permit, some of them don't speak English, for one, don't read English. And, and if they don't like you, if they don't like you, it doesn't matter if you have a permit. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, if grandma does not want you on her land, grandma is not going to be concerned about whether or not you have a permit. For her, it's totally you know, useless. Mm -hmm. she, it's like you have nothing, you know. They look at you as a person and, and knowing the culture, knowing how to talk to them, knowing how to handle problems, that's the key very often to getting the shot. Oh, yeah. And also just, you know, how they feel about you. You know, they kind of get it by just asking you a couple of questions or trying to get a feel for you, you know, what kind of a person you are, especially when it comes very delicately, because I've had customers ask me if they can photograph, you know, the children that are in the traditional dress. And I always say to them, you know, you need to ask the mother. And I noticed that one time at Spider Rock, uh, one of the participants asked a mom if he could photograph her daughter, who was, um, I think, the little princess at the elementary school. So she was in her jingle dress and everything. And the mother, you know, she looked at him just for a minute without saying anything. And then she just shook her head yes. 
Yeah, she made a call about him, basically. She did. What kind of a person he was, you know. She decided whether um, she liked him or not. However, it was okay for him to photograph her daughter or not. Right, you know? right. And, and that's a lot different from uh, our culture where people basically, you know, think of it as being polite. They give you permission to be polite, you know. But the Navajos give you permission because they feel good about you. Right. That, that's a very big And difference. they feel good about yeah. it. Yeah. I remember when I was teaching on the Navajo Reservation, I had many parents tell me, I am so glad that you are teaching my child. Mm. Because, you know, the Navajos, they have a say in it. And if they don't like you, because right. maybe um, they're concerned about, you know, the you know, just the person that you are, they'll take their child out of your class and put them in another class where they feel that it may be more beneficial to their child. They're very concerned about who teaches their children. And what effect you that know. person has, what effect the, per- whether the teacher a, has a po- on the children. Yeah, whether it's a positive effect, you mm-hmm. know, what kind of... I've had many parents would walk into my room, and I always displayed all of my students' work, and they were like, whoa. And they would say, this room feels so good. Mm-hmm. It just feels good. Right. It's important for them. The yeah. emotion, you know, the, uh, the feeling. Right. Yeah. The ambience. So, so the other um, aspect that I talk about the photography workshops is that we teach photography on the foundation of the principles and elements of art and design, you know. So I quickly explain, you know, that, for example, in Navajo land, we may talk about the color palette in the landscape. Which is very important. Mm-hmm. And also maybe get them thinking about what is their vision for their f- photography. Right. Yeah, I I often say that everybody today is a photographer, but most of these photographers don't have a vision for their work. They are just doing the same thing as other photographers. So they are basically doing duplicates of what already exists. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an unfortunate state of affairs, but when you have millions of people studying a new medium like photography, you know, starting to practice a new medium like photography, it's inevitable. You know, there's going to be some people that know that they have to create something new and know how to do it. And then the majority are just going to do the same thing that we've seen in books and magazines and on the web. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we do is we try to get students to think about what their vision is. And uh, it's not an easy task because a lot of them have never thought about it. Right. You know, they're like, well, what do you mean I have to have a vision? And I'm like, well, I mean, do you want to do the same things that you've seen or do you want to do something new? And, you know, they usually start scratching their heads and wondering exactly what that means, you know. Well, Um, on the last workshop that we did, the Southern Arizona workshop, I remember during the print review, there was a discussion on how some people felt that Joshua Tree National Park was very difficult to photograph, but then others really excelled. And you had a discussion about Joshua Tree is a nondescript landscape and that you really have to bring more of yourself into the image and not depend on the mittens of Monument Valley being right there and doing it for you, basically. Yeah, some locations you can create a good photograph simply because you're there, and you have a camera and you press the shutter. And that would be Monument Valley, for example, where to take a bad photo of Monument Valley, you have to basically point the camera towards the ground or not have a camera, you know, because it's really hard not to take a stunning photograph. However, the real problem then becomes how to take a stunning photograph of Monument Valley because you have to do something new and there's been so much done that it's challenging, you know. So you have to really work at it. 
there are other locations like Joshua Tree, which you just mentioned, where there's nothing that captures your attention, really. Everything is pretty much the same all over. And you have to really work the composition, work the scene, uh, work a lot, you know, look for things and create a composition from scratch, basically. Right. And I think the reason that topic came up is because we were photographing the Sonoran Desert. So they were trying to organize the sororos in the landscape with the prickly pear, with the jumping choya <laughs> and everything. And I think that's when... Uh, someone in the workshop said, well, this reminds me of Joshua Tree, you know, the Sonoran Desert, where you got to organize all of this chaos and all of these plants and try to get a great shot of a sororo that nobody's seen before. Yeah, it's very similar. Joshua Tree National Park and the Sonoran Desert or Sonoran, basically Sororo National Park, they are very similar. They are very nondescript. And even though a Serraro is impressive, large, uh, has some beautiful shapes, it's difficult to take an interesting photograph of it. One that's not a cliche, one that's not a postcard, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit the same with Joshua Trees. They are impressive, uh, they are graphic, they are to some extent photogenic, but they are just one tree, you know. It's not like Monument Valley, you know, which is uh, 500 feet high and, you know, miles and miles, uh, you know, there's 25 miles of distance between Monument Valley and the Overlook and... uh, the background, you know. Here you have one tree, you're 10 feet away from it, and that's it, you know. Right. What are you going to do with it? Well, you have to be creative, you know. And, and that really are locations that ask more work on the part of the photographer than a location like Monument Valley, mm-hmm. you know. And if you're just studying photography, in many ways, it's more rewarding to go to locations like Navajo Land that are relatively easy to photograph because you can focus on the light you can focus on the time of day you can focus on you know what lens you're going to use you know all of these things while if you go and you start with a location like joshua tree or the sonoran desert you're going to have to focus on all of that plus create a composition from scratch which is very difficult and locations like joshua tree or the sonoran desert are locations that we usually recommend to experienced photographers people that have been on our workshops for a long time Yes. And not to beginners, because beginners are mostly going to be, you know, frustrated and they are going to look at us and say, well, I can't get a good shot. You know, and when that happens, I tell them, what do you mean you can't get a good shot? Look at me. I just I just did. You know, I got quite a few good shots. So they realize that it can be done, mm-hmm. but they don't know how and they get frustrated and sometimes get discouraged, you know, because of the difficulty of the task. And so we actually recommend to go to locations that are easier to photograph, you know, like Navajo Land, Antelope Canyon. Uh, you know, things like that. There's a few others, of course, there's quite a few. And not to locations that are non-descript because they are going to require skills that they don't already have. Right. It's a little bit like learning to drive on ice versus learning to drive on pavement. It's going to be harder on ice. And is it a good idea to start on ice? You know, I don't know. I'm not a driving instructor, but I would say, you know, start to learn how to shift the gear on asphalt, you know, (laughs) you know, because otherwise you have to shift the gears, to steer the car, to accelerate, to brake and do all of that on a surface that's totally slippery, you know. I think you have to have some comfort somewhere. You have to have something that works for you, you know, that makes things easier, you know. Mm -hmm. And then another thing I talked to them about is the print review. Right, and that which is a print review, not a review of photographs on a screen. Right. Uh, or not a review of a photograph uh, on an iPad or an iPhone or an iPad or some other device. Right, uh, of their previous work. Right. And I talk about how 
They should bring a couple of images that they're proud of, but they also need to bring images that they're struggling with so we can help them with it. Right. But I, I want to f- focus a little bit on the fact that it's a print review because a lot of students, especially newcomers, you know, people that are starting to really study photography, don't understand why we want prints and not an image on screen. And I think that's a very important aspect of fine art because one of the things that we do is we teach of course, photography on the base of art. We teach both technique and art, but we also teach fine art photography, not photography. And fine art photography has one goal, and that is the production of prints. Images that are printed on paper, on canvas, on, on whatever you want, on metal if you feel like it, but images that are printed, right? not images that are shown on a screen. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference with, let's say, you know, stock photography, for example, where in stock photography, you go on the internet, you do a search, or you go to Getty Images, if you want, or one of the big photo agencies, and you select an image on the basis of what it looks on screen. And then that image might make it to a website, right? or it might make it to an email, right, offer, you know, an advertising campaign, and most likely it's never going to be printed. And so that image will never exist as a print. Right. And of course, nothing stops you from using it on a brochure that you print and so on. But most of these images are actually never printed now. And so a lot of students are, you know, who have seen other images online, you know, who have come to workshops looking at images on their monitor, you know, and so on. Yeah. We may have shared images on their monitor with one another. We may have a portfolio of their work on their iPhone, you know, on yes. iPad. Uh, are now asked to make a print, and they look at us and they are, they are like, but why, right? And so we have to explain why. And we have to explain that because if we don't, they are missing the whole point, you know? Right. And, and so we have to explain that, A, the end product is a print. Why? Because that's traditionally the outcome of fine art photography. That's also what you're going to show. As a fine art photographer, you're not going to have a show of monitors, right? You're going to have a show of prints that are going to either be framed or, or mounted or, or stretched on canvas, but they are going to be printed on the surface and hung on the walls or on a gallery. That's also what you're going to sell if you sell your work or give away if you give it away, you know, or hold on for yourself if you decide to not sell it or not give it. We also have the problem of people not understanding that there is a difference between what we see on a screen, on a monitor, and what we have on a print. That it's not just a matter of pressing print and having what's on the screen translate into a beautiful image on paper. Right. There are a lot of skills required to convert a screen image into a print, a fine art print. And that it's a field in itself that you have to study, you know, the, the art of printing, basically. Th- that's something that for a lot of uh, new students is uh, surprising, you know. Yes. And, and you go over the importance of and all the reasons why they need to print their own work. Right, which I wanted to get to because a lot of them are like, okay, so if I need a print, I'm going to give it to Costco or I'm going to send it to, you know, Prints Are Earth or some local lab that I know that does beautiful prints. And I tell them, I say, no, I want you to make your own prints. I mean, if you have no way of making your own prints, by all means, get something printed somehow, Costco, you know, Prince Arts, you know, your local lab, whatever. But as soon as possible, learn how to make your own prints and get your own printer and make your prints yourself. That brings up the question, usually, as to why, right? Yes. And my answer is always the same. How would you like to buy a print by Ansel Adams that was not printed by Ansel Adams, right? And of course, you can replace Ansel Adams by your favorite photographer, whoever that might be. Right. And 
by extension, it also applies to painting. How would you like to buy a Picasso that was not painted by Picasso? <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> or how would you like to buy a Vlaminck or De Chirico that was not painted by Vlaminck or De Chirico? What value would it have? Right. And I think that once I put that question to them, they quickly understand that the value would be nil. That the value of a painting is that it was painted by the painter, not by somebody else, because that's called a fake, right? <laughs> and the value of an Ansel Adams is that it was printed by Adams, because after that, it will have been printed by somebody after his death, and of course, it has very little value. Mm-hmm. You know, what if you buy an Adams printed at Costco, like most of them get their prints at when they just begin, right? Right. Or how would you like to have an Ansel Adams printer that prints ours or your local lab, right? By some teenager that doesn't know what they are doing, you know? It's probably not going to have a very high value, right? And the minute that people hear that, they start to understand the concept of fine art photography, which is the print is the expression of the photographer's vision. Right. Not the image on screen. The image on screen is a stage. We go from the camera image, the image on the LCD screen of the camera, to the image on screen, to the image on screen that's processed and then optimized, and then to the print on paper. And all of these are stages that go through tremendous transformations. Yes. But eventually the print is not like the image on screen, and the image on screen is not like the image on the LCD screen. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think when you explain it during the workshops, you usually do it during the print review, it's something that they've never really thought about. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's if if they are beginners, it's a new concept. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a concept that they understand if they think about buying work themselves. Oh, yeah. Because nobody would buy an Ansel Adams at $100,000 or more if it wasn't printed by Adams. Exactly. So I asked them, I said, well, okay, so what about your work? You're going to sell work that was not printed by you, and we are starting to understand that value comes from having printed your own work. Right. But if you want to create work that has value, you have to print it yourself. Yes. And the question came up, remember, well, Natalie, do you print Alan's work? And I said, absolutely not. You mat my work. I mat and frame <laughs> it, yes. But I print And it. then I, you know, I was joking around and saying, you know, once I mat it, then I carry it downstairs and Alan signs it. Then I carry it back upstairs and then I frame it. <laughs> right. So the workshops are not just about learning how to take a photo. It's also about learning what it means to create fine art photographs, what's mm-hmm. involved. And, you know, the printing is just one aspect, but there are many others. Right. Uh, I think um, another question sometimes people have when they've never taken a workshop from us before is they're either a beginner and so they don't know how they're going to fit with the rest of the group or they tell me that they've been doing this for a very long time, you know, and they're like a professional amateur, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and so I don't know if I'm really going to learn anything on your workshops. Mm-hmm. It's either I don't know enough or am I going to learn anything? Mm-hmm. I always wonder how they would like to hire a professional amateur to repair their car. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, that you really want a professional and not an amateur, you know, when it comes to important matters. But the thing is that a lot of our students tell us that the very first time they come to a workshop, and that is that they've done this for a very long time. But you can do something for a very long time in a way that's not very efficient. Yes, I agree. And I think that that's where the problem really lies, that they have indeed done photography for a very long time, most often since they were teenagers or even before, 
with breaks, you know, usually during their years in business, you know, maybe usually a break of 20, 25 years, 30 years more. And then they picked it up again. But they really did not have an efficient system. You right. Know? And so they kept doing the same thing at length, but without really progressing. So when you say system, are you talking about workflow? Well, yeah, workflow would be the system where you, you actually optimize, uh, convert, optimize, and print your work. Right. But also a system of thought about what is the goal. Right. You know, I mean, you know, we have students that have been trying to improve the sharpening of their photograph for the last five years. And they are quite shocked when I tell them exactly how I do it and that it takes me a couple of seconds, basically. Well, you, you don't know. even look at sharpness, for one. <laughs> I refuse to study prints on the basis of sharpness because I, I think it's not... Nobody buys a print because it's sharp. Right, yeah. and you put on your glasses only if they ask you to. If they want me to look at sharpness, I'll put my glasses and I'll study sharpness. But nobody buys a photograph because it's sharp. No. And nobody collects art because it's sharp. I mean, that's just a photographer's concept. It's greatly exaggerated, you know. But what, what I'm saying is that if that has been your goal for the last five years, to improve the sharpness of your prints, you basically have wasted a lot of time, and it's time to stop. But what do you do instead, right? Right. I mean, we have photographers that don't know what to do except improving their gear. And they're quite shocked when I tell them that what matters is the print, the photograph, not the camera that took the print, right. not the camera that took the photograph. And they're like, well, what, what is the camera for? Then? It's just as important as a pen brush. You, know? you have to have a pen brush to make a painting. I mean, or you can use a palette knife, you know, or, or you can use your finger, but you have to have a means of applying the pen to the canvas. That's what a camera is, the means of capturing an image, a photograph. After that, nobody buys a photograph because it was taken with camera X, Z, and Y. They buy photographs or they collect photographs because they like the photograph, the image. Right. They have an emotional response to the image. And, and so Brad brings the question, what am I going to do if I'm not going to work on sharpness, if I don't have to figure out which one is the best camera? You know? Well, I mean, that's where we come in you know, and we give them what they should be working on. You know? Right. But, of course, it's like anything. I mean, you know, you, you can very well do something for 10, 20 years without making any progress. There's nothing easier than that. Right. I mean, you know, I'm not a musician. I have lots of instruments which I play in a very, you know, basic manner, and I don't progress. <laughs> you, know? <Right. laughs> you know, But if somebody was to say, how long have you been playing music? I've been playing a long time, years, 10, 15, 20 years. With what outcome? With a very modest outcome, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a very limited outcome. So, you know, to ask how much is not really a good question, or to ask how long is not really a good question. If somebody says, how long have you been, you know, doing music, and I say, well, 15 years, somebody might be impressed. But if somebody said, well, what have you ended up with? Mm -hmm. You know, what is the outcome of those 15 years of work? I'd honestly say, not much, right. <laughs> you know, and the person will have a much more accurate answer. And so we ask that question during workshops. What is the outcome? And we look at the prints because it, sometimes people can't tell what the outcome is. It's actually quite common for people to come to a workshop with prints that they think are over the top, that their family, friends, their mother has told them that they are just stunning. Only to hear from me that uh, they are quite common. <laughs> they are f not so stunning, <laughs> right? Right. And I think that that's because it's really difficult to appraise your own work. Basically. Right. Well, I like it when you tell the uh, sometimes the beginning student doesn't know if they'll fit in with the rest of the group because we always have repeat customers on the majority of the workshops. And I love it when you tell them your learning curve is going to be very steep. <laughs> 
But the good thing is, is that you haven't developed many bad habits yet. <laughs> so, so you won't have to go back and break any. It's just a matter of you're going to be learning a lot. You may be overwhelmed with all the knowledge that you learn in the next five days. But when you get home and, you know, as it starts to soak in and you start to work on your images, you'll be fine. But you may be overwhelmed in the beginning. And then those that have been working on the photography for quite a while and are working on projects and stuff, how they still have changes. Mm. They may be small changes, but they're very, they're small changes. They don't have such a steep curve. Well, they are smaller and smaller as you become more experienced, but they're also more and more significant. Yes, they because are. Because in the beginning, if somebody has been focusing on, to go back with the same concept, sharpening for the last five years, and you told them, you're done, let it go, it's good, right? This is how you sharpen, let's move on. That person is immediately going to make major advances, you know, once they do what we tell them, in the direction of creating fine art, right? Because fine art is not a sharp image, fine art is an emotionally significant image. Right. You know, a photograph that has an emotional impact on the viewer. They're immediately going to make major strides forward. But those major strides are going to lead to a base where the majority of fine art photographers are. That is, if you look at fine art photography as a whole, you have to have that base to even be considered a fine art photographer. Right. So they have made major strides, major progress as far as they are concerned, but they are no farther than the vast majority of fine art photographers. From then on, if they want to really go farther, they have to work on their own vision, on expressing their own vision. And that's going to be a slower progress. But those strides are going to be much more significant because most photographers never get there. Right. right. So they are going to become part of a smaller and smaller and smaller group of photographers whose work can be recognized instantaneously as opposed to getting comments on your work that are like, your work is almost as good as or makes me think of the work of, right? They're going to hear things like, when I see one of your photographs, I immediately know it's one of yours. And right. that we are going to hear from people that have never met them before, right? Because to hear that from your friends, that's really a misconception because they know you, right? And so they know what you like. But somebody that doesn't know you, that just looks at your images and can say, okay, I know it's one of yours because, right? Of this and this and this. That's an achievement. Right. And that's an achievement that can only happen once you've reached that base, you know, that I talked about where you're now creating fine art photographs. What is the common thread? Yeah. throughout your work. What brings their work together. Right. Which, of course, is not as easy as finding whether it's sharp or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it takes more experience. You know? Right. Yeah. The other question I have in regards is carpooling. You know, some like to carpool. And I explained that, you know, I always go over that during orientation. And I explained to them, you know, that we always have a really good group of customers, which we do. They're very friendly, and I said some of them, they love to carpool because they can chit-chat while we drive from one location to another. And uh, for this last gentleman that I talked to on the phone just a few days ago, that was really important to him that the group was a friendly group. Maybe so, he went to workshops where the group was not so friendly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because and he, he mentioned that he had gone to other workshops and that he wasn't so enthused, right? Right. And he mentioned that I sounded very friendly on the phone, but he wasn't sure if you were friendly. <laughs> and I started laughing. I was like, oh, of course he's friendly. I said, we both love what we do. 
I told him we were trained as teachers and with so much information out there about both of us, it's kind of hard for me to sometimes, I'm surprised at a question like that. Well, I think that some people are going to look at the information and some may not find it or may not take the time to look at it. I mean, who knows? You know? Right. But I think what this person was sharing is that it's important for him and I think it's important for all participants to be in an environment that's fun, that's comfortable, where we feel at ease, where we are surrounded by people that are like-minded, that are friendly, you know, that are ready to help. And they're part of the group. Yeah, that they feel part of the group, you know, that there is a positive ambience, you know, that there is goodwill. And we promote goodwill, you know, that's very important. It's something that people do because they want to have fun, you know, and I always tell them, if this is not fun, something's wrong, come talk to me. Yeah, because we got to change something. <laughs> we got to change that. Yeah, we got to, you know, something's wrong. And it's yeah. not because of me. I'm, I'm trying to make it as fun as possible. It's because something else and we'll figure that and we'll fix it, you know. Right. Um, we'll have to figure it out and fix it. Yeah, it's very important, yeah. But, you know, one thing we did not mention is our respective roles. And, uh, you know, the basic is that you take care of the logistics and not take care of the artistic, right? So you handle all of the logistical aspects of the workshop. And I handle teaching the art and the technique of fine art photography. Mm-hmm. And giving presentations on vision and projects and, and all sorts all sort of, of subjects that vary from one workshop to another. Right. You know, Vision would be one of the more advanced concepts, otherwise yes. composition or, you know. Light. Light. Like uh, in Antelope yeah. Canyon, the different types of light that you're going to find in Antelope Canyon and how to photograph those different types of light and how to recognize it. Right. Because the goal of a workshop is not to teach you something that you couldn't learn any other way. If you really put your mind to it and you sweat blood and sweat and tears, you're going to figure it out. You're going to find out. But it's going to take you years. Mm -hmm. The goal of a workshop is to teach you all of that within five days. And what would have taken you maybe five years is now available to you within less than a week. I had that question, I've talked about that quite often during workshops, when I was at the Beaux-Arts in Paris, where one of the students eventually one day got frustrated at basically painting and drawing all day. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) He basically said, I've had it with this. I'm tired. Um, I could do this at home. And the teacher was there and the teacher said, you're right, you could do it at home. And the teacher said, and I would learn the same. And the teacher said, you're right, you would learn the same. But there's just one thing. And the, the student, you know, obviously we're all teenagers, you know, was really smart and said, yeah, and what would that be? <laughs> you know? right. And the teacher said, well, what would that be is whether or not you could actually stick to doing it every day, five days a week, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Exactly. And the student said, I don't think so. He said, that's right. You don't think so because you won't. You know? <laughs> yeah. Because at 18 or 20, you're not going to do that. You're not going to have the discipline. And right. of course, we could say that the majority of our students are much older. But life gets in the way. If it's not discipline, it's something else, distraction. Also, Something's going to come up during the day and you're just going to go off and do that. Yeah, even if it's just simply not knowing what to do. Right. Because right. it's one thing to stick to it nine to five every day. Right. But it's another one to progress. And, and to progress because what you're doing every day, all day long, is evolving. Because right. you have a teacher that says, okay, you went from here to here, now you're here. I want you to do that. Right. And then a few months later, say, okay, now you're here. I want you to do that. Exactly. And keep moving you forward. Because that's the whole concept of education. The whole concept of education is not to reiterate the same thing ad infinity. It's to bring the student to a farther and farther or more deeper and deeper understanding of the subject. And, right. and mastery is the goal eventually. 
Well, and you're also with your peers. And you're surrounded by people who do the same thing. And a right? lot of times, yeah. I mean, if everybody's painting the same still yeah. life or drawing the same model or something, you know, you're going to look at your drawings and your neighbor's drawings. You're going to walk around and look at your classmates' drawings. But like you said, you always have the instructor's input there as well. Well, it's the concept of the print review. The print review is not just a review of uh, somebody's work. It's a review of everybody's work that everybody can listen to and look at. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, if you have 12 participants on a workshop, you have, besides your own work, 11 other examples of work. Mm-hmm. And you're going to learn something because, of course, none of us have thought about all the things we can do. Right. And we're eventually going to see things that we've never thought of doing that are attractive to us, and that's called inspiration. It's inspiring. I know at the Beaux-Arts, you know, even though I could have done the same thing at home, even though I don't think so, you know, but theoretically I could. <laughs> I learned a tremendous amount from watching what the other students were doing. Oh, definitely. Because they were doing things that I had never thought of doing, and they were doing them well. And guess what? If I tried to do them, which I did, I learned how to do them well. Right. And so all of a sudden you impress yourself, not because you discovered something, but because you learn from watching the others. It's, it's a very interesting concept that actually exists as in engineering just as much as in art. You know, I was mentioning yesterday, you know, if you look at the, the Formula One teams that use factory engines, right? You have a Mercedes that has several teams to which they sell the engines and that are providing data on the testing of these engines. On the other hand, you have the new... McLaren Honda team, you know, McLaren has been there for a long time, but we are just starting to use the Honda engines this year, that has just their team using Honda engines and cannot benefit from the data collected by other teams the way Mercedes does. And so Mercedes is basically benefiting very much like students benefiting during a print review, which is the examples of the others right? and the data that that brings to you. Of course, in engineering, it's data that takes the form of graphs and curves and power delivery and things like that. In art, it's more the level of inspiration, you know, and ideas from other students. But all in all, it's the same. Yes. You're not alone. That's what it means. Here, McLaren Honda is alone. While Mercedes has three other teams that are providing data, you know, and Ferrari has two others. And so are they going to get ahead? Of course. Because by providing the data to Mercedes, they are in practice or in effect doubling and tripling the amount of information available to that team. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, because they are the one making the engine, it gives them an opportunity to improve the engine better, you know. So there's always a benefit to not being alone. Oh, I And I think that one of the things that I've seen very often in photography, and what I've done myself, I mean, I'm not any different, is that photographers very often work alone. Yes. They're loners, you know, especially landscape photography, which you can practice on your own. You don't need anybody. Right. I mean, model photography, portrait photography, studio photography, you need somebody else. You need a model, right? And if you do studio photography, you need people to work with you to bring the product in and so on. But landscape photography, you just need to go out there, hike, take a photo, come back. You don't need anybody. And as a result, landscape photographers very much or very often work on their own, right. become loners. And when it comes to learning, they're like, I can photograph alone, I can learn it alone. But it's not quite true, mm-hmm. you know, because learning alone takes years. Right. If you ever get there. Well, and sometimes I get the question, well, what am I going to learn on your workshops? And there's so many things that they're going to learn that sometimes I just turn around and say, well, what do you want to learn? 
because if I have an idea of what they want to learn, then if it doesn't go with our regular workshops where they're actually creating images and we're only focusing on field work, we're not doing any processing or anything, then I'll refer them to the summit. Or to a processing workshop. To yeah, a processing yeah. workshop, you know. No, so. that's a good point. The problem is people don't always know what they need to That's know, true, I you know. agree. And if that's the case, the best is to just send us prints for review because we won't tell you what you need to learn. Because the reason why in art, the minute you apply to a grant or to an application for a gallery or a museum show, a show, even a workshop, you know, an advanced workshop, people immediately ask you to send a portfolio. And there's a reason for that. A portfolio being a collection of prints, it doesn't have to be anything formal, just, you know, 10 to 12 prints. And the reason why people ask for that is because in art, the art does not lie. Right. If you can't do something, it's going to be visible in your work. Yes. Your photographs are going to tell us immediately what you can and cannot do, right. where you are at. And so if somebody, it so happens, has no idea what they should learn, but they feel that they should learn more than they know, just send us some prints. We'll tell you. My address is on my website. You know, you can email us. We'll let you know what you need to know. Right. You know, because we can see that's our job. I mean, that's our experience. We, we are used to looking at photographs and finding out what works and what doesn't work. And that's what we do during a print review on a workshop. And very often during a first workshop, what students walk out with after the print review is a very clear plan of action about what we need to do in the future. Yeah. You know, where to go from here. Yes. And I tell you, after the print review, once they have a couple of days to absorb what you right. have said about their work, it gets them excited. And by the time the last day, they're actually telling you, okay, now when I leave here, I'm going to do this. I'm going to work on this. I'm going to do that. And they're excited and motivated and, you know, ready to go to the next level. Right. The question then becomes whether they're going to do it or not. Mm -hmm. And I would just tell them, I can only tell you what to do. I can't do it with right. you. Right. We can't be behind you. I can help you do it. I can do it, you know, next to you, but I can't do it for you because I'm not you. You know, you have to do that yourself. And that is really the only catch I think that some students face is some of them just don't do it. Well, yeah. and I think that explains why people come back to another workshop. Yeah. People is... that come back are doing what we tell them, what mm -hmm. we recommend. Those that don't come back are not doing it. I think it's as simple as that. Right. They decided that They'd rather just keep doing what we've been doing for the last five, ten years. And that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Just don't call me and ask me why you're not progressing. <laughs> that's, right. that's the only right. thing. Don't blame me because I've told you what to do. And whether you do it or not, you know, it's your freedom. But um, I can't be responsible. Well, I know just in the past year, we've had a couple of students <laughs> that when we saw their work again, we both looked at each other and we were like, wow. What happened? I mean... Right. And what happened is they worked hard. Oh, and they, they did what we told them. They did. Yeah. And, oh my gosh, it was yeah. just tremendous. I mean, if you're at point A and you want to go to, let's say, point B, C, D, F, and so on, there's no secret. You're going to have to work. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to work hard. Well, I think one of them said that he had your layers uh, adjustment layers mastery DVD, and he had it for a while. And he, what he said is he went back through it all over again, mm -hmm. and then remembered the remarks that you had made on the previous right. 
workshop in regards to his work. So he went back and he reworked all of those images and reprinted those images and then started working on the images that he just finished on the workshop with you. And so he said that that really helped him was going back through the Mastery DVD. And I've noticed that a couple of them that have really jumped in their quality of prints and photography, a number of them have told me that they have gone back through the DVD a second time. Mm -hmm. And then um, maybe not the whole DVD, but certain aspects of it and rewatch the videos and practice those steps again. No, there's no secret. I mean, if somebody makes a giant or a significant jump forward, it's because they've worked at it. Mm-hmm. We are here to facilitate. You know, we are here to provide the information, the knowledge, the teaching that students need in order to go from where they are to the next step. And we're here to help them as much as we can. And we have the materials, we have the teaching tools, we have the learning tools, we have everything. The only thing we don't have is the ability to do the work for them. Uh, that's something that they have to basically decide, you know, whether they want to put forth the effort or not. And it is effort. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There's a reason why some people are really, really good at landscape photographies and some people are not so good. It's because some are working harder at it than others. Right. It's not because they are more talented. That's the most interesting aspect of it. There's a sort of myth in art that you can only create great art if you're talented. That's not true. Talent comes in at the very end. You know, you have to know the basics. If you don't know what is fine art photography, it's unlikely you're going to make fine art photography, no matter how talented you are. Right. Like I say, you know, you can have somebody very talented that's working on sharpening for the last 10 years. doesn't matter how talented they are. They are putting their effort in the wrong direction. But on the other hand, if somebody works in the direction that we tell them, they will suddenly achieve something. And the, the question is, you know, whether somebody is talented or not. And again, we can only say that by looking at prints. If you listen to people that tell you they're not talented, very often you look at their prints and you, you're like, that's not true, I see some beautiful work here. Right. So it's really a very bad idea to evaluate your own work. And it's also, I think, a very bad idea to listen to the evaluation of people that don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. We've had student after student come to us telling us horror stories about their reviews, uh, you know, the evaluation of their work. And when we ask them who did the evaluation, we realize that the person is just not qualified. They are not trained as teachers. They are not knowledgeable about the subject. Sometimes they are jealous. Or sometimes they have a conflict with the person. They don't like the person. I mean, who knows? Or sometimes they give them too many compliments, hoping to get this person to come back into another workshop. And so they're Mm -hmm. misled. They are. There is such a thing. In some things. Some workshop instructors believe that they are going to bring students back because they give them only good you know, feedback, only positive feedback. So everything is great. Well, the problem I have with that is, A, that's not honest. But essentially, if everything is great, if I, let's say, I take a workshop with such an instructor and I'm told that my work is fantastic and perfect, why would I come back? Right. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's perfect. I'm good, right? I can just go on, right? Mm -hmm. I have nothing to learn from that person, you know? What we do is something very different. What we do is we do a fair evaluation of our work, pointing to what works and what doesn't. And uh, that's not based on the desire to bring people back. It's based on the desire to give a honest evaluation about everybody's work. Right. You know? And the reason why we have that approach is twofold. The first one is I truly believe that you know, honesty and integrity are foundational aspects of what I do. And the second one is that we have students that come from very far that 
spend a fair amount of money, and because of his reasons, they deserve the truth. They deserve to hear exactly what their work is about, where they are at, and how to get to the next step. Right. That's all. I mean, that's what I would want if I take a workshop. Oh, absolutely. And that's what I wanted when I took workshops, and that's what I got mm-hmm. from the good workshops, you know. Mm-hmm. Not a good rub, but a honest evaluation of my work. Right. Well, I got that from my art teachers during uh, reviews when we had to hang up all of our work, and I taught the same way. My art teacher, you know, he would go through everybody's drawing, he would always find something positive to say, something good to say, and then he would say, okay... For the next week, this is what I want you to do for the next class, not the next week, because, you know, we saw him like every couple of days. So, for example, it's Tuesday. Okay, so on Thursday, by Thursday, this is what I want to see. I want to see da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I used to do that with my students when I taught art, because I would see them every other day, because we had 85-minute class periods, and I would always find something good to say about their drawings or paintings or their artwork, and then I would say, okay, now what I want you to do is work on this and this and try not to overwhelm them the little little things I just let it go and focused on other things you know what I mean I didn't nitpicky on things for them it's important to work on the most important things first it is the other little stuff, it usually falls into place right. once they get the other stuff down. So, yeah, there yeah. are things that are important, and you can only fix one thing at a time. Exactly, you know? and you don't want to overwhelm them. <laughs> I mean, if somebody's just starting, they can't become you know, world-class fine art photographers in a week, you know. Right. There's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done that they can't do in that much time. So, obviously, we have to start somewhere and we start on the most important, you know. Right. And then get them on the right way and then go on from there, you know. So, I think uh, part two of this uh, series that we wanted to do is what is the difference between the regular workshops and the little-known workshops? And we'll cover that in the next episode, I think. Because we like to keep each episode to about an hour and we're already at 50 minutes. Yeah, I think we should probably stop for now. So I think what we've done here, to recap a little bit, is really talk about some important aspects of our workshops. And the most important being that we are trained as teachers, that we are not teaching because we don't know how else to make money with photography. We are teaching because A, we want to, and B, we've learned how to teach. And uh, before that, you know, we made a lot of money selling prints and we continue. It's just that we wanted to expand into teaching because we have the time. And when I was doing the Grand Canyon show, uh, which is where I really got started selling my work, I did not have the time to teach. No. I was selling prints all day long. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we made a fortune, but, uh, but in the process had... of making a fortune, we had no time to do anything else. Well, you... You couldn't even photograph at one point. Right. It was, you know? I was so successful in doing what I love that I could no longer do what I love. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Be aware yes. of that. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a risk. You know? Yeah. But you, you also had so many customers that wanted to learn photography from you or wanted to go with you. And Yeah, and but I couldn't uh, do it. No. Uh, because in order to teach, you have to write. Yes. You have to prepare tutorials. You have to prepare lesson plans. You have to prepare syllabuses you know, take care of the logistics, you know, organization. It's not just that you put a sign up one day and you say workshops, that doesn't quite do it, you know. I mean, you can, but it's not going to be very good. It's that you are doing 
a whole environment for teaching, a teaching right. environment. And in my case, I published four books, you know, and each of them takes a couple of years to write. I published uh, seven mastery workshops on DVD to this day, and each of them takes also a couple of years. And I wrote, I think since I started teaching, probably over 500 essays, you know, and you can find them all over the web, you know, they're free. So that's something that takes time and effort, and it's a focus. And you can't have that focus if all you do all day long is mat and frame and print and sell. <laughs> yes. you know, like, like we used to say, you know, print, sell, ship, right? That's yeah, what we used to say, you know, print, sell, ship, right? <laughs> yeah. Print it, sell it, ship it, and then go back again. And that's what we did for five, seven years, you know, only that, nothing else. And it was frustrating because we had a lot of people that wanted to study with me, but yes. I couldn't teach. Yeah. And so eventually we found a solution, which is to change, you know, our marketing approach, sell prints that focus on quality rather than on quantity, raise the prices, and by doing so, be able to have free time. And that free time, we use it in part to teach. You know, and we do other things. And also have time for hobbies. And have time to <laughs> have for hobbies. Yeah. We had no hobbies. And now we do. You know, now we have lots of free time. Yeah. Um, even though you know we teach and we sell prints and we print, sell and ship. You know, we also have time for hobbies. Uh, you know, such as car shows. You know, the cars, collecting art, you cooking know, classes, cooking classes, and and uh, landscaping. Uh, uh, gardening, <laughs> right? Yes. I'm not sure what the yes. name is, you know. Gardening, uh, car collecting, and uh, art collecting. Yeah. And we just went to an art show yesterday and we uh, found some art we like and, you know, invested in a few pieces. And yeah. We're going to go back next week uh, and invest Buy in some a few more. more, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's important because you can't just invest in art blindfolded. You have to spend a lot of time looking around and, you know, we invest in real estate also. We do all sorts of things, you know. But that's really to me an important aspect of this because we do this because we want a lifestyle not just because we want to create art and and live from art we want a lifestyle and i think that uh, to my knowledge everybody that goes in the direction of doing something that they really like wants a lifestyle they don't want just the activity mm -hmm. i agree so on the next uh, episode we're going to talk about our little known workshops we're also going to talk about the Fine Art Summit. Yes. Right? What are the difference between those and the regular workshops? Right. The difference between our regular workshops and the little-known workshops and the Fine Art Photography Summit. Yes. And then in the podcast after that, we're going to talk about specific locations like we did today with Navajoland, and we're going to talk about Antelope Canyon, which is probably the location that have... I have been to the most, perhaps. Yes. And, and one of my favorites, if not the favorite. And one that I always say should be on everybody's list. There's two times in a photographer's life, before Antelope and after Antelope. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So we'll yeah. talk about that. So there's two podcasts coming up. Don't miss them. And in the meantime, thank you for listening. And uh, we'll uh, see you on the next podcast. <laughs>